You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 613 for April 5th, 2023. On this episode, vocalist Joe Laurie. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Joe talks about Needlepoint, and somewhat surprisingly, I have something to add to that conversation. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode of The Jazz Session, a thank you for me on an episode, and occasional behind-the-scenes info and other cool stuff. And did you know, fun fact, if everybody who listened to this show became a member, it would be my job overnight. Actually, that's also true if everybody who was ever on the show became a member. So my gosh, there's two whole pools of people who might consider supporting The Jazz Session. Just a personal note, this is the first episode of The Jazz Session that is being produced in Charlottesville. Virginia. I just moved here two weeks ago to take a job as the program director and the afternoon host on 106.1 The Corner, which is a a AAA station, kind of alt-rock, indie rock, rock rock, cool pop music. Uh, You can hear it at 106.1thecorner.com. I'm on from 2 to 6 Eastern in the afternoon every day. And I'm actually recording this in my own apartment, which I moved into uh, yesterday as I'm recording this and uh, either one or two days ago, depending on whether you're a member or a member of the general public as you're hearing it. I don't have any furniture or anything, so I am sitting on the floor uh, with the microphone on an overturned cajon and my um, laptop next to it and in a cinder block basement apartment that actually, I don't know, at least in my headphones, doesn't sound super, super echoey. I thought it would be a lot worse. I think the fact that this room is carpeted is really helping. Um, But yeah, so uh, next phase of my life is beginning. You know, we'll see how it goes. And uh, fingers crossed, this town has a jazz club in it. I have not lived in a town with a jazz club in a very long time. And in fact, I'm not sure that I've lived in a town with a dedicated jazz club since I lived in New York City the last time, and I left there in 2012, so that's over a decade. So I'm pretty stoked about that. The club is called Miller's. You might remember that when I was on the Jazz or Bust tour um, in 2012, I came here to Charlottesville and I interviewed John Durth and Robert Jospay, both of whom are still here. And uh, yeah, so we'll see what happens. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful about the possibilities. Joe Laurie's latest album is called Acrobats. Here's a sample. Most folks buy themselves houses And promptly box themselves in With a husband or wife A subscription to life And the sound of junior practicing violin And they know a dream of the places they'll go they just brood about places they've been well 
thank you very much, though the joys be many. Thank you very much, I'm not having any. I'm traveling light, no one's weighing me down. Got my Joe Laurie, welcome back to the jazz session. Thank you. It's so nice to be back. We will we will talk about the many things that have transpired in the interim since the last time you were on when the number when the episode numbers were single digit uh, you were on episode 42 <laughs> the first time and this will be 600 and something so it's Amazing. been a little while and a few things have happened but we'll get to that uh the reason that we're here is to talk about acrobats uh, the new album on whirlwind recordings it's uh really fabulous and it is a trio recording that as far as I can tell, immediately makes the title incredibly relevant because Acrobats really says it all. I mean, it's voice, bass, drums, and the open air below. It's it's a kind of a high wire act the whole time. And I'm very interested in why you chose to make an album in this in this trio format. Well, um, it it sounds a little bit masochistic, but I think one of the number one reasons, whether it's a good one or a bad one, I don't know, is because I knew it would be really challenging and and it was um and i've spent time kind of in the jazz adjacent world for the last decade i mean i have i have been still playing jazz um as a side person with with various people which i love but i hadn't made a jazz record as a as a leader in over a decade and so i wanted it to be jazz with a capital J, I suppose. And I wanted to use standard material. And one way that I thought I could make it different <laughs> is to do something that you don't see or hear uh, done very often. And and I think the trio format for a vocalist is uh, fits that bill. And I also knew that it would really stretch me. And I probably wasn't going to be interested enough if it wasn't a challenge. So so that was kind of the starting point. Um, the other starting point was, you know, there are so many projects that were inspired by COVID, and this was inspired in, in some ways by COVID by the fact that I had fled to Australia um, in March 2020, um, and another uh, Australian musician, one of the very best, uh, Linda Mahan O, oh, had also um, gone to to Australia, also to have a baby, <laughs> as, as as I had. And when I knew that we were both kind of stuck, kind of luckily stuck in Australia uh, during that time, it it got my thoughts um, kind of percolating about a project with her. And there's a wonderful Australian drummer who actually is not on the project. We'll get to that later. But um, initially the idea sort of started fomenting, um, thinking about how much I would love to be playing with the two of them. And and with the two of them, I, I could imagine not needing anybody else. Thought the 
So you have an incredible trio. You've already mentioned Linda, uh, who has been on the show before, and the trio is rounded out by the fabulous Allison Miller, who's also been a guest on the jazz session. And so I guess uh, if you don't mind, maybe we'll just continue right from where you left off with the story of how Allison ended up on the recording. Well, yeah, and I, I think this is an interesting kind of little tale, um, and it it speaks to something that's really important to me and really important to a lot of people at the moment um which is it has a bit to do with gender bias okay and I never set out to make an all-female recording um in fact yeah it's not it certainly wasn't wasn't in my plan um Linda uh I was going to say Linda was chosen for the recording, but no, the recording was chosen for Linda in a way, you know, I wanted to do something that I could make with her. So that kind of, that takes care of why I chose her. It certainly has nothing to do with her, her being a woman. It has to do with her being an absolute monster and one of the greatest bass players uh, on the planet. Um, but during this time, so, so I, I had this idea percolating to do this with Linda uh, and Ben, Ben van der Waal. Um, and Ben is one of my favorite, favorite drummers in the world. He lives in Perth, which is literally the most remote major city in the world. <laughs> um, and, you know, with Perth was in lockdowns and they, and they didn't, you know, basically it wasn't possible to do it with Ben and then COVID, well, it, it didn't end, but it, it got to the point where Linda was able to go back to the States and, and for various reasons, I ended up, um, back in London and I didn't want to abandon the idea of doing a trio record. And I started thinking about making one in New York, but I was having tremendous trouble landing on the right drummer for this project. And it's not because I don't know many fantastic jazz drummers in New York. I do, but trying to I knew the chemistry for this project would be so important and none of the absolutely excellent, superb, amazing drummers that I was thinking of felt right when I was imagining being in the studio, not in the same way that that I could imagine playing with Linda and Ben. At the same time, uh, as this was all going on, I had just begun uh, a job at Sydney Conservatorium and my title is uh, Equity and Jazz Program Leader and this this really interesting um, role that they've created there um, and this program that I'm leading is about creating better gender equity in jazz, so with a particular focus on female and gender diverse musicians. So with, and and I say this with a certain degree of shame, (laughs) I kind of reluctantly thought, well, seeing as I have this job, I guess I better try to think of a woman. You know, and I, I, and this is this, this is this, and I think this is so interesting because this is the sort of thing that this conversation is a very important one that we're that a lot of people are having at the moment. Um, and one of the first thing that, that things that comes to light when people are afraid or resistant, um, or just skeptical of how to approach this is that, well, I just want the best musician for my project, you know, and and the implication there is that if you bring this factor into your decision making it's going 
it's going to move away from a meritocracy or that in some way your project is going to be compromised because you feel that you have to employ a woman. And I didn't think I had to employ a woman. I just thought, well, surely I better just have a think for a second and think if there are any options that work. And immediately, immediately, I thought of Alison. And I had worked with Alison almost 20 years prior um, and a few, and, and for a few years when I first got to New York and then she was too busy. But um, working with Alison uh, was probably my favourite experience with a drummer that I had in New York. And as soon as I did that little thought experiment and removed my unconscious bias where a drummer is a dude, <laughs> I was able to think of my ideal drummer for the project. And there was there was no question. As soon as I thought of Alison, I realized, oh, of course, that is the drummer that I want for this project because she is she is the person that would best create the the music and the sense of fun um, and all the things that I love about Ben, who is fantastic. She is the she is the other drummer in the world that I can think of that would bring that to this recording. And when we got into the studio, it was just blatantly obvious that uh, I'd made the right choice. Um, it was such a fantastic experience and it was an experience that I could have with nobody else uh, other than maybe Ben. So the thing that was really striking about that is, you know, around the gender conversation, we we talk so much about well, what women and gender diverse uh, or, or otherwise um, disenfranchised or marginalised groups, who's missing out on the gig and we need to make sure that people aren't missing out on the opportunities. But on the employer side, I would have missed out on my ideal drummer because of unconscious bias. Um, Ali doesn't need this gig. She's got she's got plenty of gigs. She's very in demand. She's very busy. Um, but my project would have suffered if I hadn't been able, if I hadn't had sort of the opportunity and impetus to overcome that bias, that no matter who we are, even if we are equity in jazz program leader at Sydney Conservatorium, we all carry around with us because of of our conditioning and 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 years and years and years of of inequity within this music. And this conversation wouldn't even be occurring if I was interviewing and as a as a cis straight man, I will be the one to say this. If I was interviewing um, another man about why his trio album had three men on it, that would never in a billion years that topic would would never come up as has been proven throughout the entire history of this music but it absolutely does come up i mean even from the band leader herself when the band consists of three women it really highlights how easy it is to let our biases affect us precisely and and i don't i, I don't want this album to be about it being an all female band and in fact i've i've really consciously kept that out of all all the sort of press release and and all that all the info about about the um about the album because that's not it's incidental it's an accident and it's not what the project is about but you know it is it is interesting you say that of course there would never you would never say well <laughs> well why is this all men um and it's also been really interesting now as i'm trying to program or or perform and tour this record Ali and Linda are really, really busy and I'm not always able to, so far, I haven't been able to have both of them on any of the gigs that I've done. I've done gigs with Alison Miller and Orlando Le Fleming in the UK um, and, and, and in Europe uh, and I'm about to do some gigs with Linda and Ben Vanderwall in Australia. But it's interesting now 
I have another burden, you know, I'm not saying poor me here, but like I have another burden a little bit to overcome because now the expectation is that I have an all-female trio when I'm touring this this music, which is also another really, um, it's an unfair burden. Nobody would place that on a man and say, well, last time, and on the record, it's three men, so it better be three men on the gig. Um, nobody would ever say that either. So it's a really interesting dance I'm doing, and it's it's interesting to see all the little, just the little hurdles or big ones sometimes uh, that come up uh, around this subject. Poetic, I'm so pathetic that I always have found it fast Instead of getting him off my chest to let him rest Unexpressed, I hate parading my serenading As I'll probably miss a bar So if this ditty is not so pretty At least it'll tell you how great you are You're the top You're the Colosseum You're the top You're the Louvre Museum You're the melody from a symphony by Strauss you're a vandal bonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet, you're Mickey Mouse. You're the Nile, you're the Tower of Pisa, you're the smile on the Mona Lisa. I'm a worthless check, a total wreck, a flop, but if baby, I'm the button, you're the top. You're so I'm going to move away from this topic now only because uh, we have only the time that we have, and I think we might come around to some of it at the end. Uh, because I want to ask you a little bit more about your job, but uh, I'm super glad that you brought it up. It certainly it it needs to be brought up, and uh, on on this show, I have I have done my best to talk about these issues, but it is always more authentic when it's somebody who isn't me uh, talking about it. So I, I do appreciate you uh, you addressing it. But to, just to return to the to the album as an album, we mentioned that, that it's uh, voice, bass, and drums, and I'm really curious about the task of arranging the music for this album, you know, given that all the harmonies have to be conveyed with two single line instruments, the, the voice and the bass, there's, there's no chordal instrument. And, you know, you're playing some tunes with some, some challenging harmonies in some places. And I, I'm just curious about how you approached it uh, as an arranger. That is obviously one, one of the bigger challenges when performing or, or recording in the trio format is, is trying to maintain interest and variety and a shape within such a restrictive texture I suppose the there's a I, I was going to say there's a wide-ranging repertoire although there are four Frank Lasser tunes on now <laughs> but a little bit by accident um Guys and Dolls is my favorite musical um <laughs> but there were definitely tunes that I set out to to look to do and and then uh, abandoned because I didn't feel that I was able to communicate what I wanted to communicate um, in all the richness of the of the harmony in, in this format. What I'm drawn to, I mean, even when I'm writing, I would say one of the main driving driving factors for me is how the melody interacts with the bass. And when I'm writing, I'm usually trying to imply as much of the harmony as possible with those two elements partly because of my limitations as a guitarist or pianist. So I suppose I'm really attuned to and interested in how those two elements interact. I was also looking uh, at how I could feature 
Alison and Linda beyond solos. I knew that that would be sort of challenging. Um, I mean, you can't, you can barely, obviously we can do a duo moments and we did, but even in just playing a jazz standard kind of in a jam session, something that can dramatically change the texture and interest and, and um, density of what's happening is to have another in, one of the instruments or more one instrument or more drop out. We don't have that luxury. We can't afford to lose anybody here. So um, I was, I, I suppose I, I thought about the various arranging techniques you can use. And I, I tried to use many of them. There's ostinatos, there's ways in which the drums and the bass are taking roles that are perhaps not so traditional. Um, and there are also uh, moments that are uh, highly interactive. And, and obviously in those, in those moments of spontaneity, there's, there's many moods and many, um, many places that you can go and many people that can be leading the way like well not many three but there's three people who who could be <laughs> leading the way at any particular time into any particular area so I did not tightly arrange very much of this record there's one there's one tune which is an Australian pop hits kind of like the the outlier of of the record um but there's one tune, which is You're the Voice, that I did arrange pretty tightly. But even that, we loosened quite a bit. We loosened quite quite a bit in the studio in terms of what the bass is doing. That's very much about what Linda is doing on the bass. And she what she does, <laughs> what she does with this, this kind of complex bass line that is pretty rigid in the beginning, what she does with it um, from sort of halfway through and and in the outro is just absolutely just beastly she's just amazing down the barrel of a girl control freak anyone who knows me even a little bit will attest to that uh, I did know that for this project to be successful I had to be able to give Linda and Allison license to do whatever they felt in the moment and that's probably one of the things that I'm most proud of on the record because it's one of the things that I have historically found hard to do is is let go and and trust trust the process and trust the musicians that I'm working with. And I didn't hold any of this too too tightly at all. So we had a very brief rehearsal just for the kind of really tricky stuff on a couple of things. It was more so that that Linda and Alison would be able to just live with the songs in their head for a couple of days before we went into the studio. But we had a really, really brief rehearsal. And then we went into the studio pro- probably, I think, with about 16 potential tunes and we just played. 
And in fact, one of the tunes on the record, which is kind of the bonus track, that that was just a sound check. So it starts with Linda. I mean, I had a great engineer in in Alex Wenger and you know as as with any good engineer he's always rolling um but he said you know can we get some can we get some bass sounds and linda started playing and then he said okay ali and and she started playing a bit and then i i started noodling along a little bit we just had so much fun on that first moment of playing together that we wanted to to have it documented so so that made the record <laughs> uh so we just played and and Alison said we did a masterclass a, a few weeks ago and she she did say you know she's never she hasn't been in a session a vocal she's done a lot of playing for vocalists and she hasn't ever been uh in a recording session that was quite so loose which which I was really pleased to hear because we had so much fun quick break from the interview to remind you about becoming a member. You can become a member for just $5 a month. When you do, you get early access to every episode. You get thanked by name on an episode. You also get access to This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that's bringing them joy. On this episode, Joe talks about Needlepoint. As a matter of fact, I don't usually point this out, but when you become a member, you don't just get access to the bonus shows going forward from when you joined. You get access to everything that's ever been on the Patreon, which is a lot of stuff. It's all the stuff from Nikki's era. It's all the stuff from my era before that. Uh, track of the week, all that kind of stuff is all still there. So if you become a member, you suddenly unlock this massive archive of stuff to listen to. So, you know, think about it. It's five bucks a month. I like on each episode to thank three people from my Patreon community this time around. A tip of the hat to James Yonda, Aaron Stabell, and Rome Chelly. Thank you all very much. Aaron has been a guest on the show in both regular and bonus episodes multiple times, so make sure to check him out. Now back to the interview. Ask me how do I I mean, one of the beauties of a record like this is, uh, you know, I guess, you know, it's both a beauty and a danger. In this case, it, it works. And so it's a beauty is that you can hear everybody and everything they do. I mean, there if you want to focus in on any one of the elements in any song, they are incredibly exposed. But that's also wonderful because I, I realize when I listen to a record like this, how little of the music I personally choose to listen to has a ton of space in it. In my personal listening, I'm listening to a lot of, you know, rock and pop music and stuff like that, which is, you know, very produced. There's a bunch of instruments there. All of the, you know, the whole kind of sonic spectrum is usually filled up. And so when you hear a record like this, where, I mean, you can hear the breaths sometimes it's, it's really exciting. It is, it is thrilling. It does have that feel of a, of an acrobatic, you know, high wire act where you can, you can just watch everything and you can always hear the potential for it not to work. And so when it does work, it's that much more thrilling, I think, as a listener. Well, I think that's true. Um, of, that's certainly true of a lot of my favorite jazz recordings. And, you know, I mean, 
to take if I, I were if I were a bell, for example, you know, in so many of my favorite recordings, hearing something that you know was unplanned or maybe even I mean, mistake is the wrong word, but you know, you know, something something that's a surprise to even those playing it are so often my favorite moments uh, of the recording, partly because of their content, but also partly because what they're signaling about what's happening in the studio. You feel like you're witnessing something special. You're witnessing a a, a truly human interaction and an interaction that could only and will only ever happen at that place at that time. And that sort of bleeds out to the rest of the track I suppose it makes it frames uh what is happening uh and and it's something so special about what we do within jazz it's I would say it's it's kind of the main reason that most of us who love jazz love it is for that special element and that special feeling of the spontaneity and of the risk and hopefully not always but hopefully reward of of that openness to um to whatever might happen. So in If I Were a Bell, in, in the middle of the track, I, I sang eight bars kind of to throw to Ali to trade. I thought, you know, she would take eight, but it, you know, sometimes we have a misfire of communication. We, you know, it was the first thing we'd played. It's first thing in the morning. And it what it I either didn't communicate it perfectly or somebody made a different decision, whatever it is. I sing eight bars and then it is not eight bars of drums that follow. It's it's something else. Linda keeps Linda plays something else and it kind of turns into another exploration of that chorus. And it's when I listened back to it, I thought, oh, oh, that's a shame. We probably can't use that because that's that's such an obvious mistake. And I thought, well, why not? I mean, um, are we gonna really throw away this track because something that I intended didn't happen the way that I meant it to and I thought well that's that's silly I like everything else about it and maybe I can even like that too and now and now I do when when viewed through that lens at the very beginning of this episode that you have been on the show before and that is true you were on episode number 42 and this episode is going to be 600 and something so uh, that was 15 years ago the show hadn't even been i think it had been going just a year when you were on and it's just 16 years old right now as we're recording this interview and when i met you i met you on a lawn in front of a house on the grounds of Tanglewood where you were singing for uh, like a, a party at the Tanglewood Jazz Festival. And we ended up doing, I really just immediately fell in love with your voice and we ended up doing an interview in some room in that house. And then very shortly after that, 
your entire life changed uh, in musical life in a remarkable way that we have not mentioned. And it I has, don't know what you're talking about. I, I know you don't. So I'll try to fill in some of the gaps as I get to the question. And so we're talking, if people just listened to episode 42 and episode 600 and whatever, the obvious thing to think would be, oh, this nice person has been making nice jazz albums since uh, 2008. And now it's 2023 and they're still doing exactly the same thing. And that's great. Sounds awesome. But actually what happened in the middle was that you suddenly toured the world with several of the most famous people who've ever made music. And so knowing that I'm asking this question at the end of the interview with a fairly limited amount of time left, and that's the worst possible time I could have chosen, but I did anyway. Can you just tell the listeners some of what has happened to you since the last time we spoke? I was living and working in New York as, as a jazz singer, but also um, really interested in uh, English, Irish and Scottish folk music and also some Brazilian music. And so I was kind of dabbling in, in those worlds as well. And uh, at the same time, um, one of my favorite artists, maybe my favorite artist, artist in the world, Sting, was uh, doing a new project called If on a Winter's Night, which was sort of a Christmas album, but a winter album that's really centered around the music of his roots in Newcastle or in, in near Newcastle in Wall's End. Um, so music that is deeply rooted in the Celtic tradition. And for for the DVD he was going to put together around this project, he was auditioning for backing vocalists and an amazingly fantastic, talented singer-pianist called Lila Bialy was very appropriately approached to audition for that project, and she did, uh, and they liked her. And then uh, they asked her, do you know anybody else that would be suitable? Because we want four singers and we've only found three. We, we, we're still needing to, to keep looking. And she mentioned me, which I, I cannot ever express my gratitude or kind of amazement because I would not want to invite anyone else into the pool, frankly, because she is just a big, as big a Sting fan as I am. You know, it's not an understatement to say that this was my holy grail dream gig even though I, I am you know primarily first and foremost a jazz musician I spent my teen years driving around in South Australia singing all the backing lines to to all the sting records and at the top of my voice and if I if anyone could ask if anyone had asked me what is the dream gig of your life it would be singing backing vocals for sting and if you don't mind so, me just uh, putting an aura in this for just a second. I mean, the people who were making those records with Sting was like, you know, Kenny Kirkland and Branford Marsalis and Daryl Jones and Omar Hakim. And uh, I mean, the, you know, like the cream of the crop musicians. So uh, it is certainly not unheard of for people who consider themselves first and foremost jazz musicians to wind up in Sting's band. That, that seems to be the kind <laughs> of, of people he attracts incredibly talented musicians who are, uh, you know, well-versed in a variety of genres. Uh, and so, I mean, it, for I, I also grew up as a massive Sting fan. I saw the Blue Turtles band uh, live and, uh, you know, just was absolutely amazed by what I saw. And so then to hear that other people who are jazz musicians I really respect would go on to then play with him. It just felt very natural when I first heard that that happened for you. Well, you know, I mean, he he is he is a musician's musician and he's always exploring. And, and that's that's why he loves jazz so much. And that's why he he loves learning so much. And. And although yes, a, a a gig that paid well that 
took me all around the world uh, on private planes and in five-star hotels was was great, but perhaps more importantly and deeply to have a close relationship with and, and mentorship from one of my, you know, well, from my, my hero really, and to be so intimately involved in in that music and to even get to sort of write some, be involved in the writing process for some projects. And, um, I mean, when your instincts band your your family so it's it's far from it's a very close relationship I mean I saw him last night actually <laughs> I saw him last night and we sang together last night he's in Sydney at the moment and um I went to soundcheck and and got up on and he asked me to come and sing sing something actually the song that he sang at my wedding uh you know it's, it's been such a rich and amazing opportunity and and as you say as you say my whole life changed and uh he he pushed me to start writing songs. I mean, this is the other reason I've been away from from jazz for for so long, or or at least a little bit distant from jazz, is because well, I was very busy on the road with him. But he also gave me a guitar and insisted I started exploring writing more. Um, you know, at the right old age of my thirties, ha- having always wanted to, but feeling like it was too late. And he's, you know, he's he's seventy two now. You know, and he's still always exploring and learning new things and he he said what are you talking about it is never too late the the only better better time than yesterday is today so that's been he's been an amazing employer an amazing mentor and an amazing friend and yeah I mean I I recall us talking quite deeply about Until which was a song of his that I recorded on that record and we talked about it on the podcast I think um and we bonded over being such huge Sting fans so it I don't I don't ever really cease pinching myself about that. My guest for this show is Joe Laurie. The new album is called Acrobats. It's on Whirlwind Recordings, and uh, it's fabulous. And Joe, it has been, what first of all, far, far too long, but also an absolute pleasure to talk to you about this record. Thanks so much for taking the time to do it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to my guest, Joe Laurie. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can send me a message for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. Hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H for as long as that platform lasts and on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. If you would take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or in the app you're listening to it on, wherever you listen, it really helps. If you want to keep up to date on what I'm up to, my podcast, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you dig what you just heard, become a member for five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.